Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership. I'm absolutely thrilled and can't wait to get into the conversation today with Hunter Johnson. Welcome, Hunter. Thank you very much for having me, Melissa. Can't wait as well. Pleasure. So let me touch on your bio briefly so people get a sense of who you are and then um, I'll hand to you to expand on that. So um, Hunter Johnson is the founder and CEO of two purpose-driven organisations. Hunter leads the Man Cave, an emotional intelligence charity that has impacted the lives of 20,000 young men across Australia. Hunter also leads Stuff, a men's personal care brand that champions healthy masculinity. Hunter's work has led him to speak around the world, including presenting at the United Nations, Government House and the Human Rights Commission. Hunter's been recognised as an honoree for the 2021 Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia list, a finalist for the 2020 Young Australian of the Year Awards for Victoria and named a Queen's Young Leader by Her Majesty the Queen. Um, Hunter, you seem to have been pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a few problems to solve in the world, as we were just joking about before we started. So I think uh, I'm grateful that I've got the education, the family, the community that back me to, to try and have a crack at solving some of those problems. Brilliant. So let's, um, as I said, I would throw to you, for people who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before, can you take us through a bit of your journey and I guess why you are who you are? Yeah, absolutely. I... Um, God, I so I've, I, was, I think we joked about this, but the game plan was never to run a charity that tried to make it cool for young men to talk about their feelings. But for some reason, whether it's my own life experience, my unique spirit, or just the, the need in the world, I've found myself at the absolute epicenter of that. But yeah, yeah I think, you know, I, I, my parents split pretty early on. So I was a kid, I just um, did my best to try and navigate um, divorced parents and saw some amazing parenting and also saw some parenting that wasn't so amazing. Um, and, you know, as a kid, did my best to try and navigate that, but was, you know, very fortunate to have a lot of love around me. And um, I was a pretty rebellious teenager. Um, I think one year I got 27 detentions in one year, including... Oh, that's, that's a good effort. That's, that's yeah, I, including a detention whilst on detention, um, which is... Wow kind of like inception really um but I was always just a kid who wanted to push boundaries thrill seek and really just to get approval from my mates and very much grew up in a very masculine environment and drank that Kool-Aid for a very long time because that was the model of success mm. was to be you know to have power to be dominant to have the best banter to live for the stories of the weekend um to try and you know attract other young women and um but always felt it was a bit of a performance uh, mm -hmm. i didn't necessarily have the awareness of the language for it at the time but it just rubbed up against my values uh and yeah did a lot of things in my youth that i look back on now with a bit of hindsight that i'm not proud of and, um but it's it's also an important part of my story so 
the uh, the big wake up moment happened for me when I was about 16. I, I had a broken leg on the, the rugby field that ended up with uh, six operations, metal rod, four screws, two skin grafts, two blood transfusions. And um, that's where the show kind of stopped. And I had to take a good hard look at myself and got left with a comment from my grandpa that said, if I was really that good at sport, imagine if I could push that into something a little more meaningful, which was... Ooh. Pretty hard to swallow at the time, but it was uh, one of those kind of life-defining moments where I couldn't run from the truth. And um, yeah, it wasn't like things changed overnight, but it just nudged me five degrees one way. And um, yeah, that opened up the the world of exploring leadership and personal development. And um, you know, I ended up studying business and psychology, uh, and um, that led me into working at the Foundation for Young Australians with the amazing Jan Owen. And then that led into founding the Man Cave, which uh, I can talk to, but I'll leave that there. Fantastic. So um, I want to jump into the Man Cave straight away because I think the work you do is so fantastic. Where did the idea come from? You know, just give us a bit of the background around that and also talking about the fact that you've impacted on 20,000 lives. How do you guys do that? Yeah, so I, the, I'll start with why and where. Um, so I, I grew up and was exposed to, yeah, a really mixed bag of male role models um, and saw the impact of some of the pretty traditional, stoic, outdated be- belief systems that are mas- that is the masculinity script that, you know, my dad, my stepdad, my grandfather and the men in my life inherited and then subsequently passed down through culture. And I just saw the impact of, of, of harm, really, of men harming themselves and, and harming others. And uh, I saw that play out in mental illness, also with um, you know, physical and sexual abuse around. And as I got older, it just didn't make sense to me that the systems we have to deal with, whether it's mental illness, family violence, gender equality, are geared around crisis management. So we wait till something goes wrong. We try to deal with the symptom opposed to the root cause. And Mm. for me, if I look, and I did look at the data of all those things, it actually begins with teenage boys and the model of masculinity uh, that they've inherited, that they then live into and then police others to live by as well. And so my whole belief was, well, if that's at the root cause, how do we interrupt that? And for me, reflecting on my rebellious, cheeky teenage years, um, I just knew I would have loved to have had a non-authoritative role model come into my life and go, hey, mate, you're acting like a bit of a dickhead. Mm. And I know that's not who you are, but I'm going to give you a chance to, you know, test your leadership skills in a completely different direction. Would you be open to that? Well, all that was needed was just something as simple as that. And so that was the, the seed of the idea of Man Cave was sending in very diverse, very relatable, charismatic facilitators into high schools that can build trust and have banter with the boys and then take them on the journey to authenticity. And, and that's, um, that's kind of the, the inception of the story. It was supposed to be a little passion project that's now rolled on into 20,000 boys and counting, meetings with the royal family, um, support from some of Australia's leading philanthropists. And, um, you know, we're really just getting started. Congratulations. I mean, I um, was fascinated to have the chance to talk to you. And there's so many things you've just said there that I think are so important. I mean, one of the ones you talked about was the the script, the cultural script, um, therefore being very clear that if it's a script, you can change that. 
um, which is exactly what you're trying to do. I just, what I would love to ask you is, and I have a, um, I've got two teenagers, a daughter and a son. I've got a son right in the age bracket you work with, so about to turn 14. And so I've got a lot of friends with um, kids in that age bracket. And I know that there's a lot of good work going on in schools. The interesting thing is, in some cases, though, some of the feedback I'm hearing is people almost feel like um, the boys are getting so much what not to do, but they're not really getting the clarity on what to do. So yeah. I just wanted to ask you, what, what does it mean to be a good man in 2021? Yeah, well, I'll just stay with it's a confusing time for masculinity. And I, and I really think we're at an inflection point where, you know, the models or the scripts um, that was handed down to us was for the post World War Two man, which was to be almost that madman, you know, type of archetype of just be stoic, be strong, you know, uh, hold it all together, have very rigid beliefs in gender norms, you know, have power and status and privilege. Um, and it becomes around how do you remain at the top of the social hierarchy, which is very much an individualistic model of approaching the world opposed to a collectivist model where it's about all of us moving forward together. And, you know, looking where the world is at right now, we only need to look at the impact of behavior like that. And um, a mentor of mine, Dr. Anna Rubenstein, talks about uh, a boy versus man psychology and boy psychology being I am center of the universe and the world revolves around me and it's about greed and status and accumulation for self but healthy adults or healthy man psychology is I'm a part of the universe and I'm here to contribute and I'm here to serve and there is a bigger picture and it's about leaving a legacy for my children and my grandchildren. And we only need to look at who's leading respective countries or companies to see what psychology they're stuck in. And so, you know, I think um, right now we're at a, a point where boys are desperate for role models. And, and to your point, we're very good at telling boys what not to do. But, mm. you know, if you remember back to your teenage years, um, when you're told not to do something, that's often the invitation, the green light to go ahead. Totally. I, um, I didn't get as many detentions as you, but uh, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's it, you know, and, and there is some desire in boys to push boundaries and to thrill-seek. And, you know, we, we also do a lot of work in rites of passage into adulthood. And they say that, you know, boys will burn down the village just to feel the heat. Um, mm. And, you know, from those years of, you know, your son's age to kind of 18 is where traditionally that rite of passage where they'd be taken away by elders and uh, heard stories of their culture, their family. They had a challenge that they needed to overcome in order to question their mortality and move through it. And then they step into new healthy adult behaviors, letting go the boy psychology, and then the community welcomes them through. Um, and we just don't have that. We have a delayed adolescence. We have, you know, uh, an age system where you're 18 and suddenly you're now an adult. You can do adult things irrespective of the psychological development that each individual may be up to. And, you know, what I also will say is there an extraordinary amount of beautiful, kind, resilient young men out there who are looking to create a desperate, uh, a, a new narrative and are desperate to do so, but are just wanting the permission to do it. And also the role modeling, which then comes with the courage for them to do the same. 
And so, yeah, boys are wanting to change, but they're just looking for who is it they can follow. And there's not much to see in the public eye at the moment. That was going to be my next question. So, you know, are there are there role models you call out when you work with boys or how do those conversations go? Yeah, we're a big believer in um, the boys often have the knowledge themselves inside of themselves. And, and so we create spaces where they can just take off the mask and question some of the social conditioning and the rules that they've inherited or that might be present with them. And they get to redefine what does masculinity mean to them and who are the role models they look up to. And irrespective of gender, um, it's, it's who are the people they look up to. And, mm -hmm. But it's, it's also, you know, that, that age group, they're very impressionable. And so, you know, our model is to use people who can create an impression on those young young people because, you know, you're, you're 12 to 16 is your brain's developing, your body's developing, social life's developing, school pressure's increasing, sports increasing, you know, your extracurricular. There's a lot going on, mm. let alone, you know, like I was having a conversation with my 17-year-old brother yesterday and he's talking about consciousness and spirituality and I'm going, I was not talking about really? that. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's, there is some type of global awakening happening and particularly that's being lived through some of the younger generation because they're so tapped in mm. you know things that we waited into we were an adult before we were allowed to think about they have access to from the ages of like two years old on the ipad yeah. so there is this kind of shift happening and um, you know i think coming back to your question like the the qualities of a good man in 2021 are the qualities of a good human being it's about love and trust and service and accountability and responsibility for me. I love that. Um, so I just a shout out to your parents when you said you saw good parenting and some uh, some bad parenting. We're all just doing our best. Um, mm. <laughs> but um, did you have strong male and female role models sort of outside of home as you were growing up? Yeah, I, I, I did. I, um, you know, my parents, as I get older, I just I'm become increasingly more grateful, you know, for the, the angsty teenager that was like, oh, the whole world's against me. I was like, oh, actually, they're pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that's the amazing thing about values, you know, even values driven parenting is that some of the decisions that I saw my parents have to make, particularly when I was in trouble a lot. Like I remember I got in trouble at 13 for bullying my best friend. I didn't know it was bullying at the time, but it was. And my dad sat me down and, you know, wrote down, asked me to write down what I think the family values are. Mm. And at the time I was like, what is this? But as I look back on that now, that's such a fundamental moment to shape my character. Maybe not in the short term, but in the long term, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, you know, my, my dad's a psychologist and, you know, also a human being a lot as well as that. So um, we've been on our journey, but, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to have role models, particularly intergenerational role models. You know, my, my grandfather was also a big man of community service and, you know, a, a story which I, I share about him is we had a family occasion in South Africa and we're walking through uh, like what was like a kind of a shanty town and I was a 10 year old kid and I was kicking a soccer ball with the kids out the front of this little village and he called me over and we walked into this um, this building that I quickly realized was not a building it was like a hut it was actually a hospital 
and we walked around and I was holding his hand and he just spoke to every person, every patient there. And then as we went to leave, got out his checkbook, remember checkbooks and wrote out a check for a thousand dollars and just slipped it into the tin donation jar and didn't say a word to anybody. And, you know, I was exposed to that at 10 years old. And again, I didn't start talking about that until he passed away, Mm. but it was a real moment that I look back on and to, you know, what is integrity? You know, what is doing the right thing when no one's looking? What's the legacy we want to leave behind? And for me, it's, you know, behaviors like that, uh, uh, actions and sacrifices that no one needs to know about, but that's actually what will make the world a better place. You know that um, these conversations are looking through sort of leadership through a gendered lens. Um, And one of the questions I'm sort of exploring with people is why do we think the needle hasn't moved on females in leadership positions in our, if I use our top ASX 200 as an example, um, and talk over the last two years, 50 CEO appointments and three of those um, were females. What's your take you know, do you have a perspective on this? What's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I've got a, a personal take as well. You, you know, my mum, who yeah. Dr. Katrina Wallace, who, you know, led an ASX listed company. And um, I saw firsthand the impact of a very um, full on patriarchal, hyper masculine environment. And I, I watched the impact on her as a human being, as well as my mum, as well as a business person. Yeah. And um, I think that's that's largely it it's it's a it's a very hyper masculine environment that's about conquest and it's about status and it's about power and i think you know capitalism of course has its benefits it's brought you know more people out of poverty than any mechanism we've invented but mm-hmm. also like anything there's a shadow side and i think we're now at a tipping point where we're starting to realize the way we've structured the world with the way we've structured our power systems that it's it's not sustainable and it, it rubs up against the short-term nature of the human experience which is like you know i'll just you know if i'm walking through the the amazon i'll get the berries and i'll eat them now because you know there might not be any around the next you know or yep. i might get eaten by that tiger um not that there are tigers in the amazon but there might be um <laughs> and you know i also think where the reason the dial hasn't shifted is because you know, it comes down to power and, and, and privilege. And so how do you, and I think this is the real art that we're trying to crack with the man cave is often to those in privilege, equality feels like oppression. Mm. And so how do we educate boys that they are a part of a system that they've inherited where they have um, certain assets that are just given to them by nature of their gender their background the color of their skin where they grew up that and not make them feel guilty or shamed about that but give them the self-awareness to be able to make a choice am i going to be someone that contributes to a system of inequality or someone that challenges it Mm. and i think the further and the older you get of course the more patterns the more life experience you have the harder it is to undo that and i think there are just people who you know, men who have been in boardrooms for a long time and have only known that. And that's a challenging thing too. I think, you know, struggle and challenge is relative. So to a guy that's worked his ass off and he's, you know, sitting on a bunch of boards that he's sacrificed probably a lot of his personal life, a lot of his well-being, a lot of his friendships, you know, a lot of his purpose or his unique spirit 
and now suddenly he's being told he doesn't deserve it or he only got it because of his his color of his skin so it's like you know it's it's nuanced and it's layered and also i think it's it's often a lot of men aren't educated on the gender dynamics too and and that makes sense because it's often on the minority group to educate the majority which is sad but it's the reality Um, and so there's no real call to action for them and it's like the classic thing when men have a daughter they suddenly give a shit about gender equality it's like like that's 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 what it took you know um but you know and i think that's how do we create things that are incentives right how how do we create incentives so it becomes emotionally relevant before crisis point I don't have the answer, but there you go. So you are, um, you're playing a, um, a long game on this, which is fantastic in terms of influencing, um, you know, what I think will be a, a generational change. Um, so thank you so much for the work that you're doing in that. I also know at the same time you've started um, another organisation called Stuff. And I'd love to hear about that journey. So firstly, what is Stuff? Where did that whole idea come from? Um, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so Man Cave runs programs in schools and they're, you know, with Year 79 boys really about uh, creating moments of authenticity for them to develop their character and their emotional intelligence and doing that in a really accessible, relatable way. That's the adult version. I wouldn't tell the boys that that's what we're doing. Um, but Man Cave's a charity and, you know, we rely on philanthropy and we charge schools based on their socioeconomic status. Um, and so, yeah, about four years ago, I just started to think what would it look like to create a business that had a product that aligned to the man cave's values that could create another income stream for the charity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, what would it look like as well to use the power of brand and consumerism to influence change? Cause we know that that is a huge way uh, to shape belief systems and worldviews. And yeah, just started to think, I was like, all right, well, when I was a teenage boy, what was important to me? I was like, well, my, like how I looked, how I was growing up, I was getting hairier, I was getting smellier. Yeah. Lynx deodorant, Lynx Africa, which I'm sure gets a run in your household too. Yes. Um, it's dominated for like, you know, a minimum 20 years. Um, and it just, you know, it didn't make sense to me that, you know, we'd have like Unilever running the Dove Real Beauty campaign for women of all shapes and sizes. And then you've got them also running Lynx, which is spray yourself and gorgeous women come chasing you and Yep. You know, it, it just didn't align to me. And I also knew we were in a real unique pocket of time where we had purpose-driven businesses, thank you, who gives a crap, Tom Organic, that were showing it's possible that profit and impact can live together. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was about four years ago. I was like, all right, let's create this brand. And originally we we're going to call it Respect. And then, damn, David Beckham <laughs> launched the business respect by David Beckham three days before we did. So he couldn't yep. get the name, but I'm really happy with where we landed, which is stuff. So it's stuff. Um, and it's like stuff for your pits, stuff for your face, stuff for your head and body, just really simple, uncomplicated personal care for men and uh, man cave. It's set up as a separate business. Man Cave's a large shareholder in the business. So it's a, an asset the charity has. And then for every thousand dollars in sales, it'll fund the man cave to go, a boy to go through the man cave. So it's um, as well as using all man cave facilitators, the guys who run the programs in all our advertising and creative and yeah, really just kind of showing that doing well financially and 
you know, doing good socially are not mutually exclusive and mm. giving guys that point of purchase decision or the people who buy the groceries in the household. Um, you know, it can go Lynx or Old Spice or Brute or I can go Stuff, which I know will help a boy become a better man. So I ordered my box of Stuff and uh, and it's wonderful and it arrived and um, I believe are there two cents in the... Yeah, two cents. So yeah. the cents, it arrived and um, my son opened the package and my daughter and I were both there as he opened the package and he was pretty excited. You know, this was a, you know, all for him with all these wonderful products. And so he had, you know, the lids off smelling everything straight away. And um, and he particularly liked, I think is there one that's got a bit of a minty sort of smell about it. He particularly yeah. liked that one. Um, but he opened the other one and he sort of had a quick look. I don't think he really smelt it. He just read the side of it and he goes, oh no. And I'm like, what's wrong with it? What's, you know, what's in these products that Hunter's making? And he goes, Cheddar and spice. I don't want to smell like cheese and flung it, <laughs> flung it onto the bed. And my daughter and I are looking at each other, thinking, "That is an unusual. That is an unusual uh, fragrance that you guys have put together there." And it was only when we picked it up that we realised that actually it's cedar and spice. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> and fair enough. That's that's great feedback. We will never go down the the cheese route for a yeah. second. Uh, do not yeah. do, <laughs> do not great. do that so um but you know here, here you are you've created this organization so you've you've got two um i want to i want to understand um the sort of culture that you're hmm. building and um you know tell me about that and tell me about your workforce and kind of what matters to them oh, amazing so culture is the most important thing uh in business for me that if you get, can get culture right, then high performance takes care of itself. And so for us, we um, we have a, a culture code. Um, at, I'll put my man cave hat on for this. Um, and the culture code basically is how we live and breathe uh, as we show up. And for us, we have three values, which are care, challenge, and choice. The way to think about that is like the yin yang symbol. So care and challenge and then choice is the line in between. Mm -hmm. And we have eight core behaviors that we've come up with, with custom phrases that mean something to us that underpin our behaviors that then become used in our culture to acknowledge and honor someone, but also to challenge someone. And um, yeah, cultures the culture is also living and breathing in a daily investment. We, um, they're not just for us values that we slap up on a wall, but they've been um, contributed to by our entire organization. We've voted on them. We've given examples to them and it's built into every single day. We do an organization wide check-in from at 9.30 to 10 a.m. where our staff log on and um, for yeah, 60 to 90 seconds each, they'll talk about how they're going in their life right now. And it just becomes the space where they can develop that emotional muscle of, you know, the language to articulate themselves, regulate their emotional state to develop connection and psychological safety with the team. And then what we've seen is just incredible results off the back of it. And so there were also days like we had today. So it's a pretty dire time in the world. You know, we we're laughing about that with a few tears just before we started. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's things going on in the world that the human experience 
of this era has never experienced. And we had our morning check-in and everyone kind of went around and there was a real heaviness in the group. And we just made a call instead of going into organizational updates and, and priorities, we just went, all right, that can wait. Let's carve out an extra 45 minutes, clear calendars. We're just going to talk about how we're going and what's present in this group right now. And people got to talk about their rage for the lack of leadership we're seeing, for you know the sadness for the young people who are continuing to take their life, yeah. to you know relationship breakdowns, and it, they just got the space to just open up and be real, and it felt alive. And I think that's the thing with authenticity. My mate um, John O'Franz talks about authenticity changes the particles in the room. And I, I just absolutely believe that that can still happen through a computer screen. And um, for me, that's culture. It, it's, it's, you know, the values in action that are lived through the people who they, those values are there to serve. And um, can I ask, um, you know, some of the, some of the conversations I've had in this series have spoken about things like, um, you know, command and control leadership is dead. I mean, personally, I think it's been dead for a long time, but, you know, they're signalling this is the absolute end of it. And that's, that's um, delivered success for mm. a huge number of people for a really long time. And people want to be able to change their leadership. Um, you know, I think they want to be able to move to this sort of authentic model. So there's a couple of things in there. I would ask you, you know, what would you say to someone who who wants to sort of challenge and move towards a more authentic space? Um, and then secondly, I think sometimes I hear feedback that people think um, my results have been delivered. I'm an accountable leader because of this command and control. If I move to an authentic one, they perceive it as you know soft or you know I'm not going to get I'm not going to get the outcomes. How would you comment on? Mm. That. Yeah, it's very much a generational question. So just to quickly point to um, what you asked before, Mancave, including our facilitators, has about 35 staff, which range from about 21 to about 47. Uh, and then staff has about six staff members who are kind of 36 to about 25. So, and then we've obviously, we've got boards for each business too, so who are a little bit further in their career. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, the, the structure we have for traditional work environments are very much a militist design. You know, the name, I'm sure you would have talked about this, but chief operating officer, chief executive officer, um, your general manager. Like it's, yes. it's you know, it's, it's, it's designed to fit a purpose of, of hierarchy um, where people were, you know, cogs in a wheel um, and that worked for the industrial revolution model of of leadership because of course the person with the most education and status should go at the top to direct orders mm. but the reality is we live in such a fragmented world with such decentralized power in so many ways so many ways not yet um, that you know most of the people that work for me are way more intelligent than me and know their jobs in their corner of the business way better than I do. And so part of that, I think, is, you know, an adjustment culturally for people to go, well, there might be some, you know, millennial coming through who's very high maintenance to manage and is very demanding. Um, and also what are the gifts that they bring? What's the mm. unique awareness? How are they tapped into what's going on culturally, whether it's, 
the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, the gender equality space or LGBTI community. There's, it, there's you know, a lot that can come to fruition. And I think it really comes down to intergenerational leadership where you have the wisdom and the experience and the capability of our elders mixed in with the audacity and the innovation and the boldness of our youth. And it's like, what's that? middle ground where that's where the gold can happen and i think the beauty about mentoring is it's a two-way exchange uh, my experience is like it's there's a mutual benefit for both parties so and i think you know that we have to at, my belief is that at our authentic core we want to create a better world and it's not about our ego surviving or remaining relevant or making the most money but it's actually about service when we strip it all away and i think irrespective of where we are on that journey it begins with wanting to contribute and make a better world for others and it's just finding what's your entry point into doing that so if you had three questions you think someone should ask themselves to kind of reflect on their own leadership where would you go with that Great. so i would say what's important to me i would then follow that up with what am i avoiding Mm. and then what does the world need so what's important to me what am i avoiding and what does the world need and i think in the venn diagram of that might be a starting point to to begin mm. um any hesitancy jumping in and starting two businesses so probably much. more along the way but oh. yeah tell, tell me all about that God, I had no idea what I signed up for, like on either of them. Um, I was just suddenly in it going, oh, my God. And particularly with stuff, it's like fast-moving consumer goods. It's like ingredients. It's like custom sense. It's, you know, investors shifting from philanthropy to investors. Um, oh, my God. I like, and also like myself in that. <laughs> you know, like one of the best lessons I've learned around this is manage my energy, not my time. Um, and particularly when running two businesses at two different life stages, one very much a startup, it's, you know, I'm, I'm as much of an asset as anything. And if I'm not showing up, not only from an integrity point of view, but just an output point of view, it, it's just not going to work. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, have just had to be responsible with my own well-being and my needs, um, which is really hard because I kind of... I don't know if it was because I grew up as like a, you know, a kid with divorced parents that I was always like trying to make them happy. But um, that's been a real big area for me is to just to map out what are my needs and what are my boundaries and almost my non-negotiables for being able to move through the world. Um, yeah. And, and if I often have to cl clarify in, in meetings for stuff um, that I'm not that dumb, that I'm just absorbing. Like I promise I'm like, I might come back a bit later with just as it all clunks in and we're in a capital raise for stuff at the moment, which is just an amazing, but also an exhausting process. And, um, you know, zoom fatigue is very real, mm. but, um, you know, I'll be at, in bed at nighttime and suddenly my brain will just clock on at 4am and start solving all these problems. And I'm like, come on, mate, at least wait till you get your coffee in. Like you don't have to solve all the problems. So just learning that and I'm still, still on the journey with it. So how do you manage your energy? Uh, so yeah, I think, um, sorry, there's a few sirens in the background. Um, uh, for me, really slowing down is probably the step one and, and listening to what I really need. Um, and that 
can look like journaling. It can look like exercise. It can look like clearing my calendar. <laughs> um, I got, you know, often I'll write down two lists. One is an integrity list where I write down all the areas of my life where I feel like I'm out of integrity. Mm. Uh, and that can be, a, you know, a bank statement I haven't paid, a phone bill, a conversation. I um, should have, I said I'd get back to someone with. And what I find it just, if I can get that down, I then also write down a clearing list, which is lists of conversations that I need to have that I'm not having or I'm avoiding. And I find that if I can just have a crack at knocking off things on that list, the mental bandwidth that that creates for me is just outstanding. Mm. Um, and I also think that that ties into the authenticity piece as well. It's not, I don't do it for that reason, but I think, you know, getting back in communication with people who I owe something to or whatever it is, um, and just taking responsibility for the impact on them, I think is a really uh, powerful way to, to be a leader that's not often talked about. Um, I think that is fantastic because so many people walk around with so much mental clutter um, mm. that, you know, absolutely impacts how you show up in a whole range of ways. Hunter, two things. Um, firstly, um, just because I really want to know, you explained the man cave um, uh, to adults before in our conversation how do you explain it to uh, the guys going through it so yeah so for the man cave we you know we work with with teenage boys and it, <laughs> we really just don't often explain a lot of it we kind of just give them the experience yeah and, and a lot of that is you know our facilitators like understand pop culture youth culture so it's a lot of like, you know, we'll hold the boys outside the room and be like, hey, you know, we'll make a few fist bumps, you know, talk to them about what shoes they're wearing, whatever it is, just to like find that little soft connection point. And often it's it's the, the banter that earns the right to create trust. And mm. then from that place, boys just absolutely step in. So for us, we just say it's an opportunity for them to explore who they are and to actually learn something that will make a difference to their life. Um, and I go, who's ever felt like you're at school and you're learning something that you probably will never use again? And that's a pretty, pretty good way to get some buy-in at the beginning. But um, yeah, and, and honestly, we just tell boys it's a space where they can just open up and be themselves and um, learn more about their mates than, you know, in the last, you know, in, in five minutes than they would in five years of their friendship. And, and do you find they're willing to do it? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's definitely an art form you know, and, and it's something we've honed over the last seven years is how do you build trust with boys who often walk around feeling very unsafe? Mm. And, um, you know, that it takes a certain type of personality um, to be able to do that. And, you know, boys test you and, you know, you have to be able to deal with a bit of the heat and the fire because they have amazing bullshit detectors and they can sniff fear a mile away. So it's a certain type of personality to be able to walk in, build trust and rapport. And um, yeah, I, I really think it's an art that we're now turning into a science as we've codified it. Um, so we can teach others and, and scale what we're doing. And you're doing what you can to scale it, but there's going to be a lot of people listening who, you know, if they've got kids of that age or, or coming up to that age or whatever, who won't be able to get access to it potentially, um, what should they do? You know, I see you guys build bridges between often, you know, parents and adolescents and things like that as well. What should they do? Yeah, it's, you know, so just from a man cave perspective, we've got about 300 schools on the wait list at the moment. So yeah. it's plus 300 schools on the wait list. We've never had government funding. There's in international demand as well. So over COVID, 
we invested in building two initiatives. We tried to come into COVID when it first broke, going, how is this happening for us opposed to to us? Yeah, yeah. Just kind of flip the psychology of it. And we invested in um, building something called Mancave Academy, which is a train-the-trainer program for parents, teachers, educators, youth workers, where they can learn the art of engaging boys. Uh, mm-hmm. And so a lot of the research and insights we get from our programs on how to connect with and understand boys, we then teach through that. Uh, and then the second thing is Man Cave TV, which is like a platform for the boys where they can go to find the answers they're likely Googling anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and the balance we're trying to find with Man Cave TV is it's like the school of life meets vice media. So it's kind of wholesome, but edgy at the same time. Yeah. And Movember have just come on board to fund that, which is yeah really exciting. Um, so I think that's just from a man cap trajectory because we recognize the scale and the demand. The demand for the scale is there. So we're mm. building and investing in digitizing. And then I think, yeah, I think it's an encouragement of um, for parents to, um, you know, reach out to their school to see if they can get man cave there. And then I think what it comes down to from the parenting point of view is I kick on back to role modeling. Young people will, you know, they'll watch and follow what you do, not what you say. And I think that's just an endless reminder, which I, and I know parents are incredibly time poor and it's tough and it's just fucking hell, unprecedented times yeah. during COVID. Um, and also your child will remember the values and the character that you display to them. And it might not be short term, mm. but I can attest from my own lived experience, which we've already talked to, yeah. um, that those, those seeds will sprout. Um, and, you know, and, and is investing in as many experience, experiences as your child as you can because we learn and our perspective gets shifted when we're exposed to people or situations that are from a different world to the world we grew up in. Mm. And to the final question I ask everybody is, from your perspective, if I say brave feminine leadership, what does that mean um, and do you think it needs to change? Oh, I think brave feminine leadership's the future. And, you know, I don't even, you know, sometimes I think masculine and feminine gets associated to men and women, but for me, they're just energetic states that we all have. And I think the the feminine qualities are, are really what the world needs right now. And if I think about who is incredibly inspiring and that it's coming through the ranks of leadership in Australia at this moment, it's it's powerful young women. You know, it's Grace Tame, it's Chanel Contos, it's Holly Ransom, Yasmin Abdel, Magid. It's like there are some outstanding young women. And I think, you know, as I reflect back on even our work with Man Cave, it's how do we cultivate boys who can love themselves enough that they're not threatened by a woman in power? Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty special, I think. And, you know, and that's also accessing, coming back to what I said, the, the men it's getting range in their leadership abilities that some days they do need to be stoic and autocratic and, you know, be decisive, but other days they need to be softer and more nurturing and um, be curious and be open and not have the answers and their masculinity is not going to fall away. You know, they actually just get more of their humanity, if anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just my reflections on your answer. Thank you so much for so willingly jumping into this conversation, Hunter. I really appreciate it. I can't wait to continue to watch the businesses that you're building. I think they're they're very powerful. Um, and, you know, I just thank you on behalf of all of us for the work you're doing and the impact that you're making. 
Well, thank you. And very, very appreciative for the opportunity. And I just think this podcast is really what the world needs. I think particularly in a time like this, you know, the day that is today, like we're just licking our wounds before we started this and, you know, the world really needs to have access to this. So thank you for the role that you're playing in bringing it to the world. My pleasure. See you soon. Bye. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.